Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. Ryan Maves. I'm the chairman of the CHEST COVID-19 Task Force, and it is my privilege today to be the moderator for this session entitled COVID-19. How did 1918 prepare us for today, and how will 2020 to 2021 prepare us for tomorrow? Uh, we're very fortunate today to have two expert uh, panelists with us today, Professor Dale Smith, uh, Professor of Military Medicine and History from the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland, and Dr. James Lawler, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. Uh, today, we're going to start with a discussion by Dr. Smith about the history of prior pandemics, most notably, but not exclusively, the 1918 pandemic. Uh, we'll then transition over to Dr. Lawler, who will offer some thoughts and perspectives on our contemporary pandemic and what this means for future pandemics. Then we'll lead into more of an open discussion where we'll have a chance to discuss your questions uh, for uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. Lawler, uh, as well as any questions that may arise spontaneously in the course of our discussion. So thank you all once again for being here today, and I'm gonna turn it over to Professor Smith. Thank you very much. I uh, think everybody has heard that you know this is the pandemic of the century and we go back to the last pandemic a century ago in 1918 and 1919 often called the spanish flu um it wasn't spanish um it was flu uh, we now have sequencing from patients to prove it's an h1n1 flu um at the time they called it flu Influenza was not a new problem. Uh, there had been a European influenza epidemic in 1889-90. Um, but it hadn't hit America very hard because America was largely a rural uh, agricultural country, beginning our industrialization and city growth. But Brooklyn and New York were still different cities then. And uh, they kind of grew together by 1918. And the borough system came about. And, you know, we began to get cities on the West Coast. Hollywood was uh, getting started. The, the challenge of comparing those experiences is there are huge differences in science and society and what was known. It is important to recognize that the best uh, minds suspected the flu was viral. Uh, virus is another word for germ. Uh, depends on whether you use Greek or Latin, but it's the source of something that uh, you, you might think of it in English as seed. Um, a virus in 1918 was an etiologic agent that would pass through an unglazed porcelain filter. Nobody had ever seen one. Electron microscopy and crystallization are 20 years in the future. What you do find is a variety of what we would call secondary uh, infectious agents in people. Haemophilus influenzae was uh, identified as one cause of the flu uh, for this reason, um, and other viral um, and bacterial agents were um, causes of respiratory disease at various times. I mean, the pneumococcus had been identified, meningococcal pneumonia had been identified. Uh, people understood that with measles, you sometimes got a pneumonia associated with it. But this was different. This ran through army camps. Remember, uh, 
Europe had been at war since 1914, but we entered the war in 1917, and it took a little while to spin up. The first clear case of flu in 1918 that anybody can find is in Kansas, uh, Camp Funston. The Army identified it. The Army Medical Department said, no, this appears to be infectious. Um, the Army said, we are mobilizing to send people to Europe. Uh, people need to go to training camps. It's just the grip. Um, and normally flu is not uh, particularly a problem. Uh, it would take a while to recognize that this flu did not have a U-shaped mortality curve. Normally, uh, respiratory disease has a U-shaped curve. The young and the old die. Uh, everybody in the middle gets along pretty well. Uh, by late 1918, it was pretty clear that this flu had a a W-shaped mortality curve. Uh, hard, hard hit were people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, not as bad as the two extremes, but uh, still this was different. But because they didn't know that, they kept mobilizing. Flu moves uh, through uh, Boston and Philadelphia on troop transports to Europe. Um, there's a war going on, so nobody says anything. Uh, it hits France pretty hard. It's hitting Britain pretty hard. Um, but when King Alfonso of Spain uh, gets sick with the flu, Spain being neutral, uh, they, of course, put it in the newspapers. They aren't censoring the news. And so it becomes the Spanish flu. Uh, it will move on and stop the German uh, 1918 offensive. Uh, it probably helped in the war. It certainly made a lot of troops sick and killed a lot moved on around the world, didn't hit China as hard, and this leads to uh, some speculation that it had an oriental origin. Uh, there had been some not as bad flu in 1917 in China because nobody could type flu, uh, nobody knows, uh, but certainly the pandemic uh, swept around the world, depending on exactly how you count, uh, three or four times. Uh, came back to San Francisco in 1919 and came back across the country. We responded locally. All public health was local in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and so different cities, states had different effects. The public health officer for New York didn't think it was a particularly bad or communicable problem early on and did not want to interfere with business. Whereas by the time it swept back around to St. Louis, they locked down tight and closed the schools, closed the theaters, told everybody to stay home. Uh, placarding houses was the chief public health measure for all diseases at that point. Placard for diphtheria, placard for measles, whoop and cough. Uh, new problem of polio was coming along and came every summer. Uh, so the public health people were used to quarantining people. Didn't have many immunizations yet, but we had a few. Uh, they were largely bacterial. And when people thought this was a bacterial disease, they set out to make uh, a bacterial uh, vaccine. Of course, it didn't do much good, finally figured out it was a virus. Uh, you could make an attenuated viral vaccine. Pasteur had done it by accident with rabies, but doing it intentionally was a little harder. And uh, so 
serial passage of flu didn't give us a very effective vaccine until we got better uh, cultivation methods uh, in the 1920s. Uh, good pasture at Vanderbilt would develop the, uh, the egg method of growing viruses, uh, which until very recently was still the method of growing viruses for, for vaccines. The, the challenge was because of this local response, um, nobody had really good data anywhere in the world. There is no World Health Organization. Uh, PAHO is being negotiated. Um, so the exchange of information uh, was very difficult and the exchange of science was difficult because of the war. You, you can't send somebody to a scientific meeting in Germany uh, if there's a war going on. So you had communication problems, but we did manage to move the flu regularly around the world because we were moving people during the war. In the United States, uh, we probably killed 200,000 people, uh, influenza and pneumonia in those two years. Now you think, well, that's not so bad, but the United States was about 30% as densely populated as it is today. And so by the time this is over, they will probably be comparable. That's a little scary because the world was not as populated either. And it kills somewhere north of 50 million people around the world. Um, incidents in the United States that we can document. Now remember, uh, all of this is very idiosyncratic, but data out of, for example, New Jersey showed about one in 250 citizens of New Jersey uh, got the flu in one of those two years. The current rates for COVID are about twice that, uh, a little more. So uh, how, how it compares um, depends on which counting you use. And uh, so it's a little difficult. It would not go away. Flu would come back episodically every winter, but it wasn't the bad flu. But there were plenty of bad diseases. Uh, whoop and cough didn't have a good vaccine. Measles didn't have a good vaccine. There were anti-vaccination movements against smallpox and typhoid. BCG was not yet available for tuberculosis. And so you had a lot of uh, open schooling. Uh, and polio was, was rising. It hit the president of the United States. Uh, by the 1950s, the understanding of virology was enough that you could make vaccines. And so Salk and Sabin, uh, Morris Hilleman. And when the Asian flu came in 57, Hilleman recognized it from samples coming out of soldiers in Japan. And now we could make a vaccine. It wasn't 100% effective, but he got seven companies to begin to make it. Uh, and so we had some vaccine. In 68, uh, the military was coming back from Vietnam with the Hong Kong flu. And we were sending people to their home of record at the end of their tour. So discharging draftees helped disseminate flu and America was much harder hit than Europe by that flu pandemic. So the social issues around epidemic spread, diagnosis and prevention uh, remained in further flus. It is important to recognize that by the 70s, we have the modern system of vaccines, the childhood diseases are going away and we have a new generation. The millennials, the baby boomers are 
closing out about 65 for births. And so only about 25 to 30 percent of our population in 2020 has any memory of standing in line for immunizations, for polio, for being locked up in the summer by traveling and coming to a billboard at the county's line saying polio outbreak, do not stop in this county. Uh, those kinds of things are in my memory, but very few of our citizens had those kind of memories. And our emphasis in public health had been on chronic diseases, obesity, other kinds of problems for a generation. So we were in some ways looking at a different set of problems in public health than we were in the first half of the 20th century and the childhood of the baby boomers. And I think those social distinctions are phenomenally important in our handling. And it may tell us something about both our experience this time and what we need to think about going forward. And with that, I will turn it back to you to pass into the future. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. And I, uh, I'm going to take the, uh, take the, the liberty of uh, mentioning to our audience that uh, Dr. Smith is uh, getting ready to retire from the Uniformed Services University after I believe it's over 40 years of uh, institution, sir. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he's been an educator for a, a, a generation and change of, uh, of military physicians. And uh, I know that in the use is going to be very, very sad to see him go, but also very appreciative for all the time that he's spent uh, in service to uh, both the university and the country. So thank you again, sir. Uh, so it is my privilege to uh, turn it over to uh, Dr. James Lawler, uh, who is a associate professor of medicine at the University of Nebraska, uh, as well as the uh, uh, director of the uh, Global Center for Health Security at the university. Uh, Dr. Lawler, all yours. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, Dr. Smith, thank you for uh, that great look into uh, the 1918 pandemic and uh, the cascade of uh, effects from that pandemic that I think still um, touched on our experience in the uh, 2020 uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, and, and continue to. They certainly shaped much of the pandemic preparedness work that went on in, in the mid-2000s and in response to 2009 H1N1. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, many of those lessons were forgotten or ignored uh, and would have come in uh, quite handy uh, in, uh, in the last year and a half. Um, Ryan's charge to me was to, to take a look at the, the lessons learned uh, from our current experience with COVID-19 and then uh, perhaps to discuss a little bit what those lessons pretend for the future uh, and uh, the next pandemic, which I, I think we all agree will, will eventually come and probably, unfortunately, we will not wait another hundred years for a century scale pandemic, given the accelerating rate of emerging infectious diseases and the vulnerability of a, a globally interconnected community, which I think has been highlighted quite well over the last 18 months. So I, th I think there's a few important lessons maybe that I would take away from uh, the experience that we've had since January of 2020. Uh, and, and that 
have significance for future events. First is the fact that these pandemics uh, are not static events. Um, and as Dr. Smith pointed out, uh, while we talk about the 1918 pandemic and Spanish influenza uh, as a, a phenomenon of 1918, uh, I think Dr. Smith uh, very uh, accurately described the fact that uh, the, the pandemic continued into 1919 and even 1920 and 1921 were, were all years of um, uh, unusually high influenza activity compared to normal seasonal influenza as uh, epidemics uh, cycled through portions of the population uh, that were not yet infected. And um, the the lesson there is that these highly transmissible respiratory viruses eventually get around to everyone. And while we talk about herd immunity thresholds and uh, when we get to a certain percentage of the population uh, being infected, the epidemic uh, naturally dies out, that uh, doesn't mean it dies out forever, it, it comes back. And, and the natural endpoint for circulation of these viruses is when uh, the entire population is no longer susceptible. <clears throat> and uh, uh, when that's not achievable, then you get continued background uh, transmission of these viruses, which is going to be uh, eventually what happens with COVID-19. It will never go away. It will be with us uh, probably for at least the foreseeable future and most likely the rest of our lifetimes. Uh, and so that that lesson there is is this idea that this is not a a single event in time, uh, nor is it something that has a direct and linear trajectory as we've seen in the last several months, we've had really uh, pandemics within pandemics now with new variant strains of the virus, including the Delta strain now out of India, which has um, rapidly and dramatically taken over as the predominant virus circulating in the United Kingdom is probably also the dominant virus circulating in much of Sub-Saharan Africa, much of South and Southeast Asia, and now appears to be poised uh, to outcompete the P1 virus that came out of Brazil uh, as the, the most predominant form of COVID-19 uh, or SARS-CoV-2 uh, in the United States. Uh, and these viruses, uh, these new variant viruses are behaving uh, significantly differently than the original virus that emerged out of Wuhan. Um, so in particular, they are, are clearly much more transmissible. Uh, they clearly have the ability to escape immunity, uh, at least immunity imparted by previous infection with uh, the uh, strains of the virus closer to the original Wuhan virus. And they also appear uh, to reflect more the phenomenon of, of 1918 where uh, younger people are more susceptible to uh, severe disease uh, as opposed to the original virus, which had, uh, I guess, if you're going to use letters for shapes, almost a reverse L where really the, the majority of uh, severe cases and deaths only occurred in, in seniors, uh, which is one reason why many low and middle income countries were spared because of their different demographics. Uh, whereas the new virus clearly has uh, much more predilection to cause severe disease in those populations. So, so we've seen dramatic changes in uh, the pandemic itself over the last 18 months. And 
uh, in part have been able to witness those with much more granularity because of the advent of new technologies such as PCR and uh, genomic sequencing, which has enabled us to really follow uh, the evolution uh, of the virus as it's emerged. Um, the second lesson I think that I would take away, uh, which is uh, one of the good news stories of the pandemic, there, there aren't many, but this is one, uh, which is uh, the advent of novel technologies uh, in our fight against these emerging disease threats. Um, first and foremost, I think, are the vaccines, um, both the um, adenovirus vectored vaccines, which are also uh, relatively new technologies, uh, Several vaccines, including Ebola vaccines, had been made based on that technology, uh, but had not necessarily been widely used in human populations. And, and certainly this is the most widespread use uh, of those new vaccines. Uh, and then in particular, the mRNA vaccines, as Dr. Smith pointed out, uh, have been uh, really revolutionary uh, in their um, in their potency and their efficacy, uh, at least against this particular virus, doesn't mean that they will have uh, similar efficacy against others. Um, their safety profile, which has been outstanding. And, and then uh, their uh, scalability, which is I think something that we're only now appreciating as, as Pfizer continues to modify their projections for how many doses of vaccine they will be able to make. Uh, they have rapidly eclipsed uh, the production forecasts for AstraZeneca, which had been previously thought to be the workhorse of this pandemic. And I, I think the reason there is because uh, as one of my colleagues who is in the vaccine industry has, has pointed out, I think uh, rather eloquently, <clears throat> the mRNA vaccines are the first technology that have turned uh, the biology of vaccine making into chemistry. Uh, and as we all know, uh, using biological systems to produce anything is very complex, often unpredictable, very finicky and difficult to scale. Uh, and what the mRNA te technology has done is taken that and put it into a chemical system where it's really just chemical synthesis that you're carrying out. And that can be done much more predictably uh, in a much larger uh, scale with um, very, um, uh, very linear results. And, and that's allowed us to, to ramp up production uh, quite effectively. And, and that I think is going to be a transformational technology as we move forward, uh, not only in our fight against uh, emerging infections, but, but also potentially uh, in our fight against things like polio. Um, so that has been a, a good news story. I think the, uh, the, um, the lesson there also still is that while these new technologies have been revolutionary and have allowed us to produce a vaccine against a new pathogen in record time, it, it still wasn't, it wasn't fast enough. That uh, even though a year is again, much faster than we've ever been able to do this uh, from scratch for a novel virus, that uh, a year is plenty of time in our modern globally connected world uh, for a, a pandemic to wreak uh, incredible havoc. And so we need to figure out how to accelerate that timeline even more. The next lesson I think I would take away is, is one that's uh, not <clears throat> one of, uh, of good news. And that is, uh, again, the, the highlighting of the vulnerability and the fragility of our 
health system. Uh, and that's true both in, uh, in the developed world, but, but also probably even more true in low and middle income countries. Uh, it, it is clear that our health systems were not uh, positioned, prepared uh, to be able to absorb this type of event uh, and to provide um, surge capability for caring for large numbers of ill, uh, as we saw in, uh, in cities and regions in the US and in Europe that were experiencing large waves. And as we continue to see in places like India and um, today in Uganda and Indonesia uh, and uh, in many countries around the world that are currently experiencing large surges of patients. And that is a vulnerability that we have to address. <clears throat> um, in many ways, this could have been much worse uh, in, uh, in contrast to the roughly half a percent case fatality rate overall that this virus has. We could have been faced with a virus like the 1918 influenza virus that was more uh, around 2%. Uh, and imagine if we'd had four times the hospitalization and fatality rates uh, as we experienced last spring and, and in the fall of 2020. And, and you can imagine what would have happened to just about every health system uh, across the country in the US and, and Europe. And so that critical vulnerability is something that we have to address. Um, the next lesson to take away and one that's a mix of good and bad news is um, the fact that non-pharmaceutical interventions can work as well as they have in places that were able to implement them effectively. I think well beyond what had been anticipated in, in modeling that was done uh, in the mid 2000s uh, during uh, some of the first US government uh, pandemic preparedness activities related to the national strategy for pandemic influenza, um, these non-pharmaceutical interventions, so social distancing, community mitigation, uh, case identification, contact tracing, isolation and quarantine, all of those non-pharmaceutical interventions, which are the, the tools that you have in the toolbox before you have vaccine or any effective therapeutics were incredibly effective. Uh, and I think you only have to look at well, A, certainly looking at countries and regions that were able to effectively implement those <clears throat> um, countries like South Korea, Japan, uh, certainly countries that had more aggressive lockdowns uh, such as New Zealand and, and Australia, but these countries were able to uh, really suppress transmission uh, to the point that, that they uh, were able to go back to some normal level of functioning. Uh, and then looking at the incidence of influenza and other respiratory virus um, viruses during the last year, which have been at record lows as a result of these non-pharmaceutical interventions that were put in place, uh, show us just how well these work. And, and again, some of the countries that implemented them incredibly well, and I, I think South Korea is uh, one of the most um, uh, one of the best examples of where that was done, they were able to avoid full lockdowns. Uh, they were able to avoid much of the economic damage and consequence that was experienced by many countries that were more aggressive with lockdowns, including the United States, where we had many more 
lockdowns uh, and, and more extensive lockdowns than South Korea. But because they were able to effectively employ uh, diagnostics, isolation and quarantine, case tracing, and other non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing, face masks, et cetera, South Korea has had remarkably low rates of infection and particularly low rates of mortality due to COVID-19. In fact, if the United States had experienced South Korea's COVID-19 mortality in terms of its uh, deaths per million population, instead of the roughly 610,000 deaths that we've experienced in the US to date, we would have been around 13,000. So that shows you how much more effective South Korea was in implementing their non-pharmaceutical interventions. So, so the lessons there are these work, they work incredibly well, and they can be tools that we can use not only in future epidemics, future pandemics, but to combat things like seasonal influenza, where you have predictable periods of time in communities where uh, influenza transmission is high and that these interventions could significantly reduce transmission and save many lives. As, as I think we all know now, influenza on a seasonal basis every year uh, kills uh, around an average of 35,000 Americans. And that certainly doesn't have to happen. Our mortality rate from influenza has been dramatically reduced. And in fact, most years for seasonal influenza, we lose close to 200 children every year from seasonal flu. We've had one reported death in a child in the last year from flu. So amazingly effective. And, and those lessons are ones that we should take and employ in future seasonal flu. But the other converse side of that coin is that you have to implement these things effectively and, and sensibly. And, and that's certainly something we we have not done in the US and, and many places in Europe didn't either. <clears throat> uh, the last thing I will touch on uh, that I think is an incredibly important lesson to take away. Uh, this is the first pandemic, I think really that has emerged uh, after the world has been completely immersed in the information age. Uh, and I think it is demonstrated <clears throat> uh, in some cases for good, but to be honest, in more cases for ill, the power of the internet and particularly the power of social media uh, and its uh, dramatic effect as a psychological tool of manipulation uh, across large populations. The amount of disinformation and misinformation that has circulated and has created uh, the political turmoil uh, and ultimately the ineffective response uh, that we have mounted uh, in the US and, and in much of the West has been in large part due to social media and information campaigns and much of it deliberate. And so I think it has demonstrated um, some of the lessons that some folks from uh, information and, and big tech companies have been warning us about for the past several years. And there's certainly been a number of prominent figures who were early innovators uh, in Facebook, for instance, who've, uh, who've had a change of heart and have realized the, the monster that they've created. And I think we all saw the power of that monster here over the last year and its ability to, um, to really influence and move people, uh, especially when wielded by um, people with nefarious intent. Uh, and that you know, obviously is a political issue, but it's also a public health issue uh, that is going to be 
a consequential one that we have to tackle if we're going to continue to win the battle, not only against these emerging threats, but uh, in vaccine preventable illnesses where we are starting to lose more and more ground. So those are, I, I think, the, the lessons to take away and the implications they have for combating the next pandemic. Uh, and again, as I, as I led with, I think the next pandemic is unfortunately coming a lot more quickly than we would hope. And um, I, I urgently encourage everyone to, um, to start working on these lessons now uh, and preparing ourselves better for uh, the next time. And Ryan, I'll turn it back over to you. And Ryan, you're on mute. Deliberately on mute, you, you, you fell right into my trap. <laughs> right. uh, thank you very much, James. That was fantastic as always. So, uh, so for the audience, for those of us who are listening live, we are open for Q and A. You can go to the Q and A section on uh, on your Zoom panel and type any questions, and we will uh, address those with uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Smith and Doctor Lawler. But I was actually hoping to to start with some questions for for both of you, gentlemen. And the first one is, you know, we talked a little bit about. Um, uh, some social changes and social changes between, uh, you know, between 1918 and today. And one of the things that I was struck have been struck by, which I find both, you know, frustrating yet in an odd way encouraging, um, was in reading the history of 1918 and uh, seeing pictures of uh, anti anti mask demonstrations again and uh, and uh, different municipalities and communities. Uh, having uh, having signs up mandating mask wearing and seeing that some controversies, although one would hope that we would outgrow them as a society, there is a certain reassurance that the uh, the cognitive errors of today are not necessarily a new. That these are problems that have been with us before. Um, I think it's easy for us to find a lot of the, the negative aspects of a lot of these, and I I am. Personally, not much of a social media enthusiast. Um, however, in terms of some of the positive impacts uh, of social media and the interconnectedness, what do you think some of those ones are? And do you have any thoughts on how we could potentially leverage those as a scientific and as a medical community uh, to these challenges going forward? It's a tricky one. Well, I think we already are. Um, in 1918, you had to subscribe to a newspaper to get local information. And subscribing to a newspaper, while not prohibitively expensive, did separate uh, people into social classes that were fairly distinctive. Uh, there were ethnic newspapers. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, Dr. Saul Jarko, a cardiologist in New York, took a six-block walk around his neighborhood and found newspapers in 17 languages in roadside uh, newspaper dispensing machines. So the, getting the information out in 1917 was a lot harder than signing on to the local uh, health system um, in our area. The military health system had information. Uh, local hospitals and hospital systems had information. 
WebMD, Mayo uh, had information. So there was there was much broader dissemination of good information if you wanted to to find it. The, the flip side is, of course, that which Dr. Laura has mentioned. Uh, these kind of formats, just like the yellow press of the early 20th century, don't necessarily have a lot of quality control in them. And uh, that is a huge social issue and uh, probably going to remain an American issue over. Yeah, I, I, I would say that, that <clears throat> a significant difference is the availability of these new technologies and, and, and the fact that they are new um, leads to problems. So uh, as you both mentioned, that, that this, uh, this concept of uh, vaccine skepticism and, and anti-vaccine movements and anti-science movements, anti-masking movements, those are not new. They've been around as long as these uh, things have existed. Even going back to Jenner, there were anti-vaccination movements very soon after Jenner introduced vaccination. What is different is the, the ability of uh, information technology, the internet and social media in particular to amplify some of these messages. And, and, and the fact that um, many of these uh, anti-vaccine, anti-science messages uh, amplify and propagate so much more readily uh, and, and easily than, than does the truth. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, at the dawn of the information age and social media, I was a, uh, uh, an inherent optimist about it, um, that, you know, the, the power of people to, to work together uh, collectively, uh, you know, freed from the, the bonds of uh, institutionalized information dissemination, I, I thought was going to be uh, a, a good revolution. I, I think my pendulum has swung to the opposite side and I will probably end up in the middle eventually. So you've caught me at a dark time. Uh, I, I know that when the printing press was invented, the, the church was horrified that people were now gonna have access to reading material, how, how horrible. But, uh, but I do think there, there are, you know, we're, we're in a, a growth phase, an awkward growth phase here, um, but it's a dangerous growth phase because we, I think we have just realized, again, the awesome, power of this new tool and have not yet figured out how to control it. Uh, and until we do, it, 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 it is going to be a challenge for us. And, and again, uh, we've seen it certainly in politics, but in public health, it is going to be an immense challenge. It has been one of the, the major obstacles to uh, a, a coordinated and, and reasonable response uh, in America and in, in the West. Uh, and, and so we should recognize that uh, and, and look at how we figure out uh, solutions to overcome that. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you gentlemen more. It, it has been a, uh, you know, and even I think on some of the, within the, the community of science, I think we're seeing some of the challenges of, of social media and this interconnectedness. One of the, one of the things that, uh, that, that I know I've wrestled with and some of our uh, mutual, uh, mutual acquaintances have wrestled with is the ways that online release of scientific data prior to the peer review process, in many cases circumventing the peer process, has had an impact on the use of therapeutics during the pandemic, where um, where you can upload your unreviewed uh, manuscript onto MedArchive or BioArch, one of these other preprint servers, and and find yourself 
rapidly influencing care before anyone has really had a chance to apply a lot of scrutiny to results. Uh, I can think of uh, three large platform trials um, uh, looking at anticoagulation uh, for COVID, a, a core, you know, critical uh, area of inpatient care, and obviously one that resonates with uh, chest members, since that is a, a big part of uh, our work in the ICU. And those trials were released by press release with a set of slides uh, in late December, early January. We are yet to see a manuscript, and yet we have this very preliminary information that's out there, uh, and no one's really sure what to do with that. And although I think that's perhaps a a, a level of uh, less societally disruptive than uh, the spread of uh, falsehoods through or Facebook, uh, that can still have a corrosive effect on scientific integrity and potentially be, you know, have deeper ramifications than just, um, you know, my, I don't have a crazy uncle, but if I had a crazy uncle, my crazy uncle, uh, Getting stuff that he uh, that he uh, heard on uh, heard on cable news. My uncles are all very sane, very reasonable people. Ryan, are you saying that my quintuple therapy regimen of hydroxychloroquine, ibuprofen, <laughs> azithromycin, and vitamin D and C is not effective against? Well, my scabies has never been better, so okay. that it's effective for some things. Right. <laughs> Professor you, Smith, you do have a tension in that. If you've got something that works and you're convinced as a clinician it thinks it works, yeah. then there are there are compelling reasons to try and tell other people it, it works. Absolutely and so, yes. We, uh, we run into this problem every time somebody presents uh, a series of three patients at uh, you know, a scientific meeting and... Uh, statistician hadn't seen the, the work yet. The only such trial I, I know of that was accurate was subacute bacterial endocarditis and penicillin. You, you had a 100% fatal disease, and once you gave them penicillin, uh, it worked. And people were using penicillin uh, in medical centers around the country uh, by the time their train could get home, and it took another month for it to get into JAMA. Um, so that's a, there's a huge tension uh, in that, and it goes back to uh, the nature of the profession. There's, there's both the scientific expertise and there's the duty to apply it wisely. And the first time I came across this um, in a modern articulation was William Mayo's 1906 AMA address, where he was complimenting the profession on how much good work had been done because of the germ theory and you know, new, new science, uh, robust licensing system was in place. But at the same time, public health was not working. And he articulated that preventive medicine is not the same as public health. And the doctor needed to engage in their community to help people understand uh, how to apply the expertise. And that was, in fact, a duty that the profession acquired in response to 
the licensing and the building of hospitals and all the things that were the underpinnings socially of modern medicine. And so this tension between expertise and duty, uh, I think has been with us for well over a hundred years. It will remain with us. And public health is at the end of the day, the politics of preventive medicine. So getting the politics out of it may be a, a bit of a stretch over. Well, I, I think that that's probably a topic that's worth, Ryan, really an, an entire session on its own. And, and that's one where I, I have actually been encouraged and, and really uh, very supportive of the movement of uh, more rapid and um, early publication of results and transparency so that the, the scientific review process could, could occur um, in the public space. I think one of the one of the faults has been our, uh, our maybe the amateur nature of our consumerism of, of that information that um, has uh, bypassed that scientific review process or these, these studies get an initial splash and, and press attention, but then the press doesn't follow up on what is a robust scientific discussion that does occur that either refutes or reinforces. But, but obviously, I think we've all experienced the, the current peer review process in, um, in established journals it is certainly not free of politics, uh, nor, uh, nor bias and, um, and error. And, and so this is, I think, a new way to, to do that. Again, uh, maybe just one that we haven't quite learned how to do as effectively as we should. But, but I think that's been a, a huge help, much more than a detriment in, in terms of getting uh, scientific data out there quickly. And, and, and those who are um, more seasoned readers of the medical literature and, and understand and, and can interpret uh, clinical research can weed out the chaff pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've actually welcomed this change and hope that it's one that continues to grow. That's a great, that's a great perspective. I, I really appreciate that. The, um, the, and, and certainly I would be, be, uh, be an error to say that there isn't room for reform of any institution that includes the way by which we, you know, by which we, conduct the peer review process. Absolutely. Um, wonderful. So one other to shift, shift angles a little bit, you know, we are all people with some current or prior affiliation with the federal government and thinking about how different levels of, uh, different levels of government have responded and what their duties are to respond to disasters, including pandemics. Um, Thoughts about changes in how, say, local, state, and federal officials have responded to both the prior pandemic and the current pandemic, and then what do what might we do with that in the future as a country, as a society? Um, how can we how can we take a look at both the things that went well and the things that went poorly to try to build something better for the next time? Purely speculative, of course although I will hold James personally responsible for it. As you should. <laughs> Dr. Smith, do you, you wanna go first? In 1918, on through the 60s, 
the United States public health system was local and state. While there was a United States Public Health Service, um, it was mostly in the business of doing research. Uh, the new CDC after the Second World War uh, had a major emphasis on state services. If you call them and ask them for help, they would be glad to help you, but they weren't going to uh, ask themselves in. And states, because infectious disease was the big problem, uh, spent a lot of resources uh, on epidemiology, on case finding. Uh, once somebody was diagnosed with an infectious disease, you would placard a house. Uh, they were kept out of school. Um, in broad outbreaks, uh, the local health officer would close down the churches and the movie theaters, and occasionally the schools. But it was never uh, statewide. It was always wherever the, the outbreak was bad that, that time. I can remember traveling in the 1950s and coming up on a county that had put up a billboard that don't stop in this county because we have polio this season. And so you couldn't get a motel there. You'd have to drive all the way through. That local targeting was was what we'd always done. But the New Deal and the reshaping of the power of the federal government over the last half of the 20th century following the Second World War uh, focused our attention more and more on federal solutions to problems. And so the local uh, public health department uh, was taking resources uh, that perhaps you, you didn't need. There wasn't a polio epidemic after polio vaccines came out. Uh, so the epidemiologist could go away and the state would have one. And then the state gave it up and CDC would have one. And so uh, we increasingly began to depend upon uh, the federal government for infectious disease expertise. Um, in 1980s, uh, rather than fix all the public health hospitals, we closed the public health hospital system and the United States Public Health Service uh, shrank in size to really just the people inside research and regulatory institutes, the FDA, the NIH, the CDC. Uh, there are very few public health service officers uh, to assign to uh, a trouble squad to, uh, to help in a public health emergency. Uh, in some ways, uh, it's not really the the commissioned corps that it was originally established to be to uh, to be the fire brigade to go to a to a problem area. This is not too bad when it's a local disaster, with the Four Corners uh, virus outbreak, uh, the Ebola and the Zika. Well, CDC and the Public Health Service had resources to to mobilize, but it's a big country, and if it, something happens everywhere. Um, except for the military, uh, we don't have much that can respond. And the military doesn't plan every day for pandemics. It plans every day for war. I mean, it's kind of the nature of militaries. So there's a, there's a, there's what I think is a gap that's a new gap that has arisen in the second half of the 20th century 
for good social and political reasons, um, it's hard to pay for things you don't need. Um, but when you need them, it's very difficult to recreate them. Uh, and if a bridge falls down, it takes all summer to rebuild it. Um, infrastructure uh, is right in the newspapers today, you know, about the, the importance of, of spending money on things that didn't need money spent on them in the last election cycle, and, but it's taken 50 years for things to fall apart. Um, public health has an infrastructure that is as badly under-resourced, I would argue, at the state and local level as, uh, as the bridges and highways over. Thank you, uh, sir. Uh, James? Uh, I, I would agree with all that. I think that ultimately uh, pandemics uh, and all emergencies are local phenomenon. A pandemic is really just a collection of local epidemics and um, response uh, in any disaster is best when it is um, organized and, and assembled uh, at, at a local level. Um, and so the, the um, really um, profound um, um, lack of support for local public health and state public health over the last several decades has, has left us uh, really vulnerable and, and, and we need to, to tend to those institutions and take advantage of uh, the many um, schools of, of public health uh, across the country that have great resources and expertise and, and research that can serve as local centers of excellence to develop and, and cultivate that capability. Um, the second thing is institutionally and organizationally, uh, I, I think we need to look at um, disrupting the monopoly uh, of health security and preparedness that currently resides in, in public health, right? That um, disease surveillance and awareness and uh, all of that is, is really um, somewhat locked up in uh, the CDC nationally and oftentimes even not shared adequately with state and local public health. Um, but beyond public health, that health security belongs to all of us, right? It belongs to uh, not only local governments, it belongs to local businesses and the private sector and, and ultimately to families and individuals. And that's an opportunity, I think, where maybe information technology can, can really be used for good uh, to start to make uh, that information more readily available to folks. Uh, and finally, I think culturally and in, in public health, certainly we need to look at how we, uh, how we adapt and, and change to make um, emergency response something that's more, a, a mission that's embraced, which I, I'm not sure many in public health have, have done really, uh, and, and B, <clears throat> Uh, to, to change the, the mindset. So I, I think certainly at CDC and in many other places, um, culturally over the last several decades, um, public health has valued certainty uh, over anything else. Uh, and, and that's probably important when you're developing childhood vaccination campaigns to make sure that the decisions you're making, the guidance you're putting out is based on uh, on data that is scientifically valid and, and certain to a high degree, um, but in an emergency response, uh, certainty is fatal because what's important is speed. 
you know, you have to make decisions rapidly and adjust. It's the old, you know, how, what they teach the Air Force pilots in the OODA loop, right? The more times you go through the OODA loop of deciding, assessing, um, the, the, the more successful you're going to be. And it's the pilot that makes the most loops that always wins the dogfight. Um, we are stuck in slow motion going around that, that OODA loop in public health. Uh, and it has uh, it, over and over in Zika, in Ebola, uh, in 2009, and now certainly in 2020, <clears throat> put us way behind the curve uh, in our response. And we have to figure out how we change that culture. Well, gentlemen, I can't think of a, of a better message to close on than that. So I think we, we have reached our hour. And I think we're in a good place to to, uh, to wrap things up. So I wanted to thank see all of the staff at Chest for helping put this session together, but especially thank Professor Smith and Dr. Lawler for their expertise and their wisdom in this. And I know, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of learning from these two gentlemen over the years, and I'm grateful to that uh, that all of the rest of our audience and uh, the folks at Chest who had the chance to do the same. So. Thank you both gentlemen and uh, look forward to hearing from you again. And thank you to everyone for joining us today. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks Ryan, enjoyed it. Thanks James. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Smith. <laughs>